Hi, friends. This is episode 13 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey, thanks so much for joining us today. In this session, we are going to take a look at the very first battle that the children of Israel had to face. You're also going to get to meet a brand new hero, someone you've heard his name quite a bit, but you're just going to see his introduction. And lastly, we're going to take a look at why was it that the Israelites were winning whenever Moses had his arms raised and they were losing whenever his arms went down. It sounds kind of superstitious, so we need to take a look at this. And so I'm praying that God will show up and speak loudly into your heart today. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Number one, if this auditorium were attacked right now, I am prepared to defend it. Yes or no? If this, oh, man. <laughs> Predominantly no. <sighs> I need to do some recruiting. Maybe we can go to the young adults and get some strapping young men. Maybe some who are currently in the military. Because <laughs> we are sitting ducks here. <laughs> no offense, none taken. I think we had maybe 15% of the people said, yes, I'm prepared to defend this place. And the rest, 85% of you are saying, I'm sorry, pastor, but if it's me or you, I'm out of here. (laughs) Great. Number two, there's at least one person from my past with which I still have a major unresolved issue. Okay, it's about 50-50. 50% of you are telling the truth. (laughs) The others are switching. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I remember that jerk. Number three, my siblings and I are best friends without any unresolved issues. (laughs) Some of you are saying, why do you think I raised a yes last time? (laughs) This gentleman said they're all dead. (laughs) Raise that yes high and proud. (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) That's right. Just live long enough, you can raise the yes card. (laughs) They're all dead. (laughs) Closing prayer. Let's, Let's go home. Number four. When spiritual leaders get too tired, God stops working through them. Hmm. <laughs> A couple of you say yes, uh, but about 98, 99, about 99% of you are saying no, that God still uses them even after spiritual leaders get too tired. It's good news for me. <laughs> Number five, last one. God requires some action on our part before he brings victory on his part. God requires some action on our part before he brings victory on his part. Oh, we're a little split. 
the majority of the people who are raising one card are saying yes. It looks like about 50% yes. It looks like about 40% no, and the rest are raising two, question, uh, two, two cards saying, I don't know. And I heard you over here say, it's a trick. <laughs> Let me remind you that questions number one through five are trick questions. They let us know where we're at. We've got to take the temperature of the room, don't we? We've got to know how we feel before we discuss it, because you need to know up front, uh, are we looking at changing our perspective or reinforcing our perspective? And so as we look at Scripture, that's what brings change in this community, because Scripture is our guide. We call this the Bible lab. It is not the opinion lab. So as we open up God's word and we see the character of God, and then we go back to things that we answered based upon what we've heard about God or been taught about God in the past, it allows us now in the present to say, but what does the Bible say? From the best understanding of what that verse is saying in its original culture, context, and language. What is the Bible saying about this? Today, we're going to take the next step into the wilderness. We've been on a journey. This is our third week stepping into the wilderness. The children of Israel have left the Red Sea. They went for a couple of days, three days. They got really thirsty. They went to the waters of Marah. It was bitter. And... Uh, they began to grumble and complain. And they've moved on, they've moved on, and now we get to a place, they're on their way towards Sinai, they're at Rephidim, and an issue arises, something that they're not prepared for. To understand, to kind of filter through, to understand what is happening in this battle, I need to ask you a question. And this question is based upon sibling rivalries. I won't ask yes or no. I'm very polite in the Bible lab. I will not ask, how many of you have a sibling rivalry right now? Because I know probably 98% of you would raise a yes card, but I'm not going to have you do that because your sibling may be listening and ask you, how did you answer? <laughs> and cause you even more problems. So I'm just going to ask this. What are some of the things that parents do that cause sibling rivalries? What are some of the things that parents do to cause sibling rivalries. If you'd like to respond, please, please raise a comment card and we will get a microphone right to you. What are some of the things that parents do to cause sibling rivalries? Right back here. <laughs> Read an interesting article this week that relates in a secular level that a study has been shown that while most parents deny it, they have favorites. Oh. <laughs> yeah, they said, everyone has always said that's not true, but when they did a survey to dig to the bottom of it, they found that 90% of parents have a favorite child. Uh-oh. Ooh. I see a few Love It cards going up. Okay. And by the way, I heard a comment over here when, when I asked the question, what, what do some parents do to cause sibling rivalries? They said, have a second kid. Was, it, was that you? I mean, I'm not calling you out, but that was very good. Very good. 
All right. Uh, who was next? Who was next? Help me out, microphone people. Right here? Okay. Go ahead. Emma. So, well, at least in my family, it's treating me and my siblings exactly the same. Exactly the same. So, so treating you exactly the same is yeah. causing sibling rivalry. Yeah, not to toot my own horn, but I'm the responsible one. So. Yeah. So, it's like, so don't treat me yeah. the same as the irresponsible child. Exactly. I've got I've to have some benefit for my behavior. Hey, I got an amen. Look at all the love it cards. Great. All right. I believe it's back here now. Mary Kay. Comparison. 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 Yes. Why aren't you like Mary Kay? If you had a dollar for every time you heard that growing up, Mary Kay, you'd have like two bucks, right? <laughs> cool. Who is next? Right back here. Thank you. Being accused of something that your sibling did. Oh! You're getting my heart now, Sharon. I'm not going to tell you what issue I grew up with, but you're getting my heart, Sharon, right there. Good. Okay. Yes. Next. Uh, I agree with the comparing, with the comparing things, but um, ch children need to be treated given what they need, not equally. Kids but need to get... Also studies that show that sibling rivalry is how we learn to get along in the world. It's actually a positive thing. Oh, yes. I agree. Because probably one of the most consistent statements my wife have, and I have made with some of our friends who are our contemporaries is, we can't wait for them to have a second child. <laughs> to help the only child learn how to deal with other children, and that the world is not just revolving around them. We and so, <laughs> or, yeah, they may never learn. Yes, ma'am. Uh, being compared to your siblings is a bad thing, especially when you grow up in a large family and you're close together in age. Oh, yes. I bet you could go on an entire Bible lab <laughs> on that. Yes, Karina. I've heard this one. I'm leaving um, some kids out of the will because they're not Seventh-day Adventist. Wow. An evangelistic punishment. <laughs> wow. I've never heard of that form of evangelism before, but I might become Adventist if that's in my will. Yes, back here. Um, being the eldest in the family is also, the eldest child is also kind of an advantage and disadvantage because you always made us the example, whether bad or good. Yeah, exactly. And you're always in charge. That's fun. Thanks, Mom. Yes, over here, Mike. Um, the country of China you know, has gone through their one-child policy. And it's been very well documented that in China, they have what they call the little emperor or the little empress syndrome yeah. because they only have one child. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So not having a sibling causes issues. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. Showing more love to one child over and above the other. Yes. Absolutely. Thank goodness in the Bible, the patriarch fathers and mothers don't show more love to one more than the other. <laughs> Otherwise, the Bible would be full of wars and issues that last for generation to generation. Thank God 
that didn't happen. In the Bible, the eldest son inherited everything. Is that Most of the time. Yeah. So We're going to see today that the oldest didn't, and that caused a sibling rivalry. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Nancy. Perhaps in large families, particularly, I remember some stories of my mother's in her very large family, parents not being attentive enough to recognize sibling bullying. Hmm. Absolutely. So that bullying within created rivalries. Uh, maybe one or two more. How about uh, you first and then Marilyn. Yes, go ahead. Um, normally, if you were not held at different standard, for instance, uh, the oldest one and the youngest one were not held at the same standard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where you feel like this isn't fair. Not at all. <laughs> uh, Thad raised a love it card. I wonder what he dealt with as a child. <laughs> yes, Marilyn. Uh, parents can fail to prepare the toddlers in the house mm -hmm. when a second child or third child is coming into the house. It's not just a parent's uh, failure at times, it's the natural heart of the child mm -hmm. to want to be the center of attention that is activated unless a parent really prepares them mm -hmm. and includes them in all the attention that that newborn will get. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I want you to take all of this emotion, all of your personal experience, all of your personal struggle within the issues of sibling rivalry. I want you to encapsulate that into your heart right now. I want you to feel the bitterness that you still hold. And I want you to take it into this next verse. Because that will make this verse come more alive to you and this story come more alive to you as we go through it together. Would someone be willing to read for us Exodus chapter 17, verse 8? Exodus 17, verse 8. While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. The warriors of Amalek attacked them. Who are these Amalekites. Who are they? Does anybody know anything about the Amalekites? Back here. I did a little looking up actually this morning, and Amalekites are descendants of Esau. And oh. Descendants of Esau, but they're also the forebearers of Iran. They are the forebearers of Iran. So, yeah. you know, it's something that Some we them. have to look back and look forward both on. Yeah. So, if the Amalekites are descendants of Esau, who are the Israelites descendants of? Jacob. The sibling rivalry. What happened in the life of Jacob and Esau? What experience did those two brothers go through? <laughs> Bad parenting, someone said. You're absolutely correct. Bad parenting. It's one of the reasons why now we shake our heads and say, old people should not have kids. <laughs> Just don't have energy to keep those kids in line. Jacob and Esau. Remember, Jacob, it was on his way back to try to reunite with Esau, to try to come back to his homeland. It was the night before meeting with Esau that Jacob wrestles with a heavenly being. 
all night. And toward dawn, the heavenly being touches Jacob on the hip. He falls down. He grabs a hold of the being's leg. And he says, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And in that moment, he is blessed by learning his real name. Someday I'm going to go through with you an understanding of why knowing your name is a blessing and what it has to do with revelation. We'll deal with that in a future topic. Don't miss a week. He is told his blessing is that you are Israel. And just to make sure he doesn't misunderstand what the name means, it is interpreted for him right there by the heavenly being that says, you will be called Israel, which means one who wrestles with God and wins. The story of Israel written within the purpose of his name. And and so as he's coming to be reunited for the first time since running for his life, his name changes to Israel. And here we have Israel, the people coming out of Egypt into the promise to inherit the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Coming out of 450 years of separation, the very first experience of Israel coming to meet Esau, he didn't know, is Esau going to kill me, all of his armies, or will he spare me? That's why Jacob's out in the middle of the night trying to pray when he meets this heavenly being. Is he going to kill me? Because I can think of nobody else that's a greater enemy than Esau. Years after that experience, Esau's grandson, Amalek. Amalek, a great warrior. He begins what is known as the first of nations. Scripture calls it the first of nations. He starts his own nation. And that's why they're called the Amalekites, because Esau's grandson, Amalek, was not only a great warrior, he's a great leader. He drew people together. He did things that no one had done up until that time. Historically, he is known as the group of people who actually domesticated the camel. Took wild camels, domesticated them, and they actually used them for their main profession. Their main profession, you would probably call today a pirate. That was the profession of the Amalekites. They were pirates. They were nomadic people that lived south of Canaan, but north of Sinai, where the children of Israel were walking. They were known as a group of individuals, as a nation, who there wasn't really a geographic location that you could point to and say, this is their city. Because to be a pirate, you kind of have to be a little bit more sneaky, hard to target. And so they were a nomadic people that would move from place to place to make it hard for you to attack them. They would send out spies and see where they were going to raid. And then they would use their camels and race their camels up and do a drive-by looting and speed off in the camels. 
What's happening with the children of Israel is the Amalekites spy out nearly 2 million people coming into their territory heading their way. And so what they do in their sneaky way is they take their spies out. And they don't attack the main body of people. You wouldn't want to attack 2 million people even if they were not an army of people. Uh, there's, there's too many chances for accidents to happen. So what you do is what they did, is they would find the old and the weak stragglers. And you would come up behind and in a very sneaky way, steal from the stragglers. And if you had to, you would kill them. But you would take the loot. Now remember, they had a lot of loot because Scripture tells us that as the Hebrews left Egypt, that the Egyptians piled high treasures upon the Hebrews. So they had treasures. And so the Amalekites would come in and in their pirate way, come in and take from the stragglers. They had learned from the predator animals, how do you attack a herd? You come and you get the slow stragglers, the weak, the old. And so they began attacking the children of Israel. It's not simply a nuisance to the children of Israel. This is something that strikes fear into their heart because not a single individual had been a part of Egypt's army. These are civilians. They don't know how to fight. There are people who have looked and studied and tried to figure it out. We're going to meet one of them here in a second. But they do not have a trained army. And that is the setting we find ourselves in now. How much of this is Esau's fault? Ask his parents. Esau's parents? <laughs> yeah. We, we, we tend to blame the parents for the kids, but when you look at this whole situation, who is it that talked Jacob into imitating his brother, putting goat skins on his arms, and receiving a blessing because the mother favored one over the other? Question there. When, when we bring up uh, that conflict, according to the Bible, it started at birth. Were they not twins? And it says that Jacob... In the womb's hand was once again on the ankle of Esau, who was first born, as if he was trying to pull him back in. Yeah. And so this conflict goes on, and it says that Esau was the favored child mm -hmm. before uh, he sold the birthright. Yeah. Well, when you look at when you look at the sibling rivalry, it appears that Esau's father favored him more than the mother, and Jacob's mother favored him more than the father. Esau was a man's boy. That's my boy. Look at him on the field. Look what he just did. Come on, Jacob, get out there. Esau, teach Jacob how to do it. Come on, Jacob, stop crying. If Esau can do it, you can do it. You're the same age. Come on. So here we have Sibling rivalries, 450 years later, that come together, and there's bad blood. Bad, bad blood. 450 years later. We have religious wars that have gone on for quite a while, but this one's huge. 
So what happens? Let's look at the next verse, verse 9. Would someone be willing to read verse 9 for us? Thank you, Lynn. Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. Oh, two major things in this verse. This is the very first time we hear the name of a major character in the story. Who do we see? Joshua. Joshua. First time we see him. What do we know about Joshua? Well, first of all, we know that he was an exceptional young man. We know that he is extremely athletic. And even though he grew up as a slave, this young man knows how to use a sword. He has the ability to train others how to use a sword. But there's a great challenge. Moses says, okay, Joshua, I need you to help us come up with an army. What are his challenges? Just shout them out. What are, what are Joshua's challenges here? No trained men, no weapons. I mean, they heaped treasure upon them in Egypt, but I don't think they were handing out swords. So they had to forge their own weapons out in the desert. And how much time does he have before his battle? 24 hours. All right, guys, we asked a question earlier in the yes and no questions. If someone attacked this auditorium, how many of you would be able to defend it? And uh, it was a very poor showing. No offense. But even if we had 24 hours to prepare, I don't trust you guys to make weapons. I'm sorry. Maybe some of you chemists in here can, can help us make some bombs, but that's about it. We're sitting ducks here. To defend nearly 2 million people, and you had 24 hours to prepare, and you have to recruit from a group of people who did, did not grow up serving in any army. In fact, one of the things you do if you own slaves is you make sure that they do not know how to fight. You do everything you can to make sure that it is impossible for them to know how to defend themselves because how do you keep them under your thumb if they can defend themselves? And so Joshua is faced with making an army out of people who have been taught not to be an army. There's a comment card back here. Um, for one thing, uh, when you're a slave or under bondage, the, your bondage holders are very brutal and you generally learn how to be brutal because you've been brutal, brutalized. Ah. So uh, fighting and, and anger and that kind of thing would come pretty naturally. So I, I, they're not trained in having a commander, but fighting wouldn't be difficult, I would think. Second, as far as weapons go, uh, I don't see why they wouldn't have weapons from the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, when the Red Sea closed up over the Egyptian army, um, whatever the guys were wearing and they floated up when they died and all that kind of stuff, they'd float to the sides of the shore and you'd <laughs> retrieve whatever. <laughs> you were making such an incredible point until you said the Egyptians had wooden swords. 
I don't know what they so, had, but I, I'm certain I would, I would stick around the shore and gather whatever I could I get. I love it. I, you know what? I, I think you're onto something there because in the shallows, yeah. that would be collectible. I would, so I'm, I would, I'm making fun with you. Not I would certainly you. look back and see yeah. what I could get from those guys. Absolutely. I, I think you're making a, a great point. Um, I, I just don't think it floated. Um, <laughs> although we do have the story of the axe head to fall back on, but um, they might have recorded that. Um, but I, I absolutely love, I, I love your, your comments, uh, especially that first half, because we all know there's that quiet kid who's being bullied and being bullied and bullied, and you've seen him the day he snaps. And Lord help you if you're in his way, because you don't even recognize him anymore, do you? Face all red, arms flying and blur. You don't even know that kid. And here's a group of people who in many ways feel like they had been oppressed and were finally free and they're not going to give that up. And so I, I think it's brilliant what you said. I never thought about that before, but it helps me build a, a greater picture of understanding how would Joshua conscript an army of guys to go into battle with a nation who are trained to do this. They have a system. They have honed this system for hundreds of years. They know how to get in and get out without anyone dying. And now they're facing an army who says enough. It is very interesting to note that this battle started with Jacob and Esau and all over a birthright. God's blessing. And their very first battle is between Jacob and Esau. And all about God's blessing. God promised that they would inherit that land. Isaac promised that the birthright would go to the son that he blessed, and one son was passed over. To us, we say, what's the big deal? It was just a prayer. We say prayer for food all the time. This was different. When Esau came and said, bless me too, Isaac said, I can't. It all started with a bowl of porridge, and now it's in a land right after God says, oh, don't worry, people, I'm going to feed you. You're hungry, I'm going to give you bread. We'll call it manna. What is it? Manna. God's blessing has been poured out upon the descendants of Jacob, so much so that it has been evident that the only reason why the children of Jacob are now in the desert is because God is blessing them and is helping them. This has been brewing 450 years. Is it, is it significant that... I, I find it curious that Jacob... No, Joshua is a descendant of the one that wasn't a warrior, and then he's going up against the descendant of the known warrior, yeah. and I'm wondering if it has to do with dependence on God in the blessing. Oh, excellent, excellent point, because if you, if you all are willing, I want you to keep that in your mind, what Thad just said, and I want you to connect it to the next 
object that we're going to look at, the staff of God, something that was not made for war, something that at one time was not called the staff of God. It was called the staff of Moses, something that was common before, something that was peaceful before, now becomes something filled with the power of God. Yes, ma'am. I'm wondering, before we get too far, yeah. if the Israelites didn't have weapons, how did they win? Oh, that is a $25,000 question today. How did they win? 24 hours to prepare. How did they win? Let's take the next step in the story, this, the next phrases in verse 9, and ask this question. Moses mentions that he will be holding the staff of God. For those of you who like rhyme time, you can call it the rod of God. Uh, thank you, King James. The staff of God in his hand. He's holding it. Why is this important? Where have we seen the staff in scenes of the past? Because like I said, this was just Moses' rod one day. An average rod. Moses had procured the staff of wood. He had possessed this staff of wood. He had used it for 40 years in the wilderness. It was Moses' staff for 40 years. And now for the next 40 years, it's God's staff. It had been used to shepherd the flock. And now once again, it's being used to shepherd a different flock. When it was the staff of Moses, it would shepherd sheep. When it's the staff of God, it is shepherding God's people. Where did the shift happen? Where did the rod of Moses become the rod of God? Burning bush. You're absolutely correct. It is at that moment that we begin to see this phraseology. Moses saying it's now the staff of God. What happened at the burning bush? A miracle. A sign. Something for Moses and Aaron to use for not only the Egyptians and Pharaoh, but to also use for the Hebrews to say, God is with us. God is going to do what I'm telling you he told me he's going to do. It becomes there. Where else do we see this staff being used to make it known as the staff of God? The Red Sea. Where else? Pharaoh's court. Where else? Before that, he stamps it into the ground, and then you get gnats or lice or however you want to translate it. Where do you see it next? Someone said it? Uh, just before the rock. Rhymes with the word Ed Sea. <laughs> the Red Sea. You guys are so fast. Uh, that's right. The Red Sea. Where do you see it next? The rock. Very, very interesting to, to read what commentators say just before this battle. This rod is used to strike a stone, and out of the stone comes water. Many theologians look at this and say, this is God expressing himself. The piece of wood representing Jesus, what he would do for you, dying on a piece of wood, being the instrument that is struck in order to bring life-giving water 
living water, the Spirit of God, into all mankind. At this moment before their first battle, God is expressing Himself in three. The staff, the rock, and the water. The staff has become known as not a normal staff. It is a magic wand of sorts. And with this magic wand of sorts, Moses takes it into battle. We head into the next verse, verse 10 through 13. Would someone be willing to read verses 10 to 13 for us? Thank you. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arm soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. So this is the first mention of Hur. What do we know about him? I mean her. Sorry. Thank you so much for laughing. You made me feel so good about myself just now. What do we know about her? Anybody? I'm sorry. Knock it off. Okay. No heckling. Okay. No heckling. What do we know about her? Yes. I believe I looked it up and her is an Amalekite. Oh, quite possibly. He's from that area. Many of the, of the commentators don't feel like he had direct connection with the Amalekites, but they feel like he might have had some blood relation to them. I'm going to talk about how after this next comment. Uh, is it okay to back up just a little bit? Of course. I'm remembering God's providence in training Moses in Egypt. Yes. Which would certainly, since he was given an opportunity to lead in Egypt, would have given him a wonderful background for training his people for yeah. battle. Yeah. It, Providence. It, that's, that's an incredible insight because remember, and, and one day, I, I've threatened this for 10 years, so it's never going to happen, but one day I want to write a book called The Books Moses Read. Because when you look at his leadership style and some of the things that he came up with to organize the children of Israel on their journey, uh, you can see a lot of influence from the books he read. Because remember, Egypt was known for its library. They didn't have a library just so you'd have a nice place to entertain your guests. Remember, Moses was brought into to be taught. And so you bring up a brilliant point. Moses, of course, would have been instructed into the, um, the tactics and the theory of warfare. It's interesting, though, it doesn't seem that he utilized them. Because instead of saying, Joshua, come here, let me tell you 
the methodology that will help us win this battle, he calls upon Joshua and says, get some people together and go fight. I'm going, I'm going to do something I never read about. I'm going to do something that is not in the book of war in, in the library of Egypt. So I think this shows something even greater. And, and thank you for coming because I, I think it emphasizes the choice that Moses made in taking his next steps. His action steps were not based upon what he had been taught about how to win a war. He went completely against it and did something quite different. It's interesting here where the staff of, of God is going before the Israelites as they go into war. And, and later on, that staff of God is put into the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant goes before them as they go into war. I, I, I love it, but it was Aaron's rod. Okay. So, um, it, yeah, and, and I've gotten confused at times too um, because they're almost interchangeable. Because sometimes when you see um, the staff turn into a snake, it's Aaron's rod. Other times it's Moses' rod. And so uh, many times we... we can easily get confused with that. But it's Aaron's rod that's actually in the Ark of the Covenant, uh, budded with almonds. We're going to get there. Um, but this is Moses's. Okay, back here. Why did, that Mo- Why did not Moses call anyone to say, hey, will you please hold up my staff? I'm going to the bathroom. Because he's been so tired. What's the importance of having Moses holding up his? I think we have to answer that question today. I think that's the ultimate question because it seems superstitious if we just look at it on the surface. Arms are raised, they're winning. Arms lowered down, they're losing. I mean, is Moses there going, let me test this thing out? (laughs) (laughs) Down, up, down, up. Oh, sorry, buddy. Um, (laughs) I got it up again. Come on, get up. Get up and fight. Um, On the surface, this can seem very superstitious. Verbally, in, in the language, there are some possibilities we need to look at. Because as you look at the final verses, which I'll read really quickly because we've we got two minutes and we've got to go. After, uh, this is verses 14 through 16. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar there and named it Yahweh Nissi, which means the Lord is my banner. He said, they have raised their fists against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. I don't have time to go into what happens, but uh, basically uh, Joshua and Saul have to finish the story. But linguistically, when we look at this, Moses' raised hands, the language that's used for banner or pole, the language that's, that's uh, used for God's throne, banner and throne are one letter off. Niss and kiss. And many theologians look at this, and when the Bible says that Moses' hand was raised like a banner, many think that the translation should be Moses' hand was raised touching God's throne. Because it's referred later here as saying, 
the reason why I don't like the Amalekites, God says, is because they raised their hand as well, but they raised it against the throne. Moses raised it to say, I've got to be connected with the only powerful source I know, God's throne. And as long as I'm touching God's throne, it's his battle. But these people have raised their fists in the air as well, but it is to pound on the throne, not to connect to the throne. And many commentators and theologians look at this and say, what is being done here is not superstitious. It's Moses, not only for himself personally as the leader of the Hebrews, but as a symbol to those who are fighting that we are connected to God. And as long as we're connected to God, it doesn't matter what force comes against us. Because as long as, I, as we're connected to God, God will fight this battle for us. And we're going to win. We won't be able to explain why. And we will build an altar here, and we will call it Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my, and they say banner, but their concept of banner back then is not what we have now. It's not a flag. They would use this term to mean more like God is my landmark. God is my flagpole. But they didn't have flags back then like we use them today. So what they would do is, at a certain place or a certain battle where you would win, they would raise a monument, a decorated pole, and they would plant it in that area so that those who would come by it would remind themselves of a battle they had won and have courage. Moses built an altar there and says, because of the staff of God, this flagpole, Every time you look at this poll, I want you to remember God himself. And some translations translate, God is the victory. God is the victory. And so as we look at this story of what is this thing, raise, lower, raise, lower, Moses, in the very first battle, this is their first combat experience, Moses throws all of his studies away and says, these people need to understand we will lose as long as we're doing it on our own. But if we will raise our hand and place it on the throne and say, God, it's your battle. I am staying connected to you. You will act on our behalf. So when you look at this story, my question for you this week, what significance even today is there in your life to look back in your own life, at your own experience when God has had victory in your life? As you look back and think of that moment, that banner in your life, how does that help you even today to stop fighting these battles yourself and to just place your hand on God's throne? Because if you place your hand on God's throne and say, God, I need victory here, you have an altar called Yahweh Nissi. God is your victory. Wow, God is amazing, isn't he? Well, I want you to come back for episode 14 because it's a discussion you have to be a part of. It's a discussion that's difficult. It's challenging. Every believer needs to have it. How do you deal with boundaries? Does God have boundaries? Should we have boundaries? What is it about relationships that either require or cause you to not have boundaries? Are you a good parent or not? Will you be a good parent or not? These are some of the things that we deal with in episode 14. And I know you're going to love it because it's something that goes deeper and it's one of those difficult conversations that everyone needs to have. So I invite you to come back. We'll see you next episode. 
Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab Podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.